Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm joined today by Nathan Zilbert, who is a resident in general surgery, also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Very well, Amol. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I apologize if I'm a little bit less than eloquent today. I just finished my Royal College exam this week, and uh, I may be operating on fewer than normal uh, number of brain cells. Excuses, excuses, but congratulations on that uh, major accomplishment. Thank you. Let's reserve congratulations until we have some results of the examinations. But for now, I will take the uh, brief reprieve from studying. And uh, I'm uh, delighted to be doing our podcast again. Absolutely. So today, Nathan and I are going to be talking about two articles. I've chosen not to do a clinical pearl this week because I'm all pearled out, uh, but we'll come back to them next time. So uh, we're going to get right into it. And then, of course, as always, we will conclude with our good stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So First, we're going to talk about an intervention to reduce the rate of cesarean section deliveries in Quebec, Canada. And then second, we're going to talk about the treatment of alcoholic hepatitis and specifically a randomized control trial of prednisolone versus pentoxifiline. So Nathan, why don't you kick us off and tell me a little bit about this intervention to reduce C-section rates in Quebec. Thanks very much, Amol. So I'm going to be talking about this paper that uh, came out in April of this year in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by a group of uh, obstetricians from our neighbors in Quebec, as you mentioned, that uh, did a study looking at uh, how a quality improvement initiative uh, implemented at uh, hospitals and compared to a control group uh, showed a, a modest uh, reduction in C-sections uh, in the province. So I think it's uh, you know somewhat obvious what some of the issues with an increased C-section rate include. Uh, basically, you're uh, trading a normal vaginal delivery for uh, a major abdominal procedure, and the consequences of this include longer length of stay in hospital, a longer recovery, increased costs, potential wound issues like infection and hernias, scarring. And, uh, and other issues that, that make it, uh, you know, a less desirable intervention in someone who, who doesn't need it. And there's uh, been a trend of increasing C-section rates in Canada over the past, uh, or at least the first half decade of, uh, uh the 2000s, increasing from 20% to 28%, which, uh, was some of the background that these authors were uh, interested in. That's a pretty dramatic rise, uh, Nathan. Any thoughts on why this happens? Do people think it's sort of inappropriate use of C-sections, and I guess that's the underlying assumption. Well, I think that's the underlying assumption. You know, they don't, um, you know, address it specifically, but if I uh, go back to, uh, you know, some of the the comments made during my obstetrics rotation, which occurred in a different environment, actually, you know, in New York City, and some of my dinnertime conversation with my obstetrician father, you know, I, I think... You know, to just be brief about it, I don't want to get into this too detail. I mean, I I think just the reality is that these women are being monitored very closely, and there's a uh, hesitancy to uh, let time elapse if there's any anything that shows up on their monitoring that uh, would be resulting in any concern for the baby, and so that so I think the threshold uh, becomes uh, maybe uh, quite low to to proceed with the C-section when in many cases or at least some cases, uh, if labor were to have been let to continue, 
the baby would be okay. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so complex, and I'm pleased to hear Dr. Zilbert's, the senior's uh, take on this. And, and maybe, I don't know if you, did you speak with him about this paper at all? He was, he was overall not, not too impressed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We can get, all right. We can get into to that when we talk about the, the effect of the intervention. Yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so tell me what what was the uh, the study here? So they randomized uh, 32 hospitals in Quebec to either uh, an intervention quality improvement initiative, specifically uh, looking at appropriate uh, C-section use compared to normal standard of care. Prior to the randomization period, they uh, began collecting uh, base you know data on uh, rates of uh, both uh, maternal and uh, neonatal, neonatal outcomes and specifically measuring the, the type of uh, delivery done. And that was continued. The intervention period was a, a year and a half, and it was preceded and followed by a one-year period of, uh, of uh, data collection, which uh, resulted in a, a pre- and post-comparison uh, analysis. And basically, this uh, was done over 32 hospitals in Quebec, half receiving the intervention. Over uh, Just over 100,000 deliveries were involved. And the uh, intervention results were that those uh, hospitals where the intervention was conducted had a, a 1.8 bold underline exclamation point, 1.8 uh, absolute uh, uh, risk reduction in the rates of C-sections as a consequence of their intervention. So what do you think, Amol? 1.8% out of like 23% baseline, right? Yeah, so the baseline rates were approximately 23% in, in each group. So I have to say, I'm not sure what to make of the one point. So it seems like an awful lot of effort. Uh, I'm very impressed at the scale of the intervention. You know, 1.8% is not necessarily something to be quibbled with. We're happy with a 1.8% absolute reduction in the rates of myocardial infarction, for example. Like, you know, that could be a, a very clinically significant rate if we're talking about like an intervention that's so common, like the C-section. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I think, so first of all, let's, talk about what the intervention was. But I mean, I, I do think that we're talking about over 100,000 uh, women. And so, uh, you know, a, a one to two percent uh, reduction, you know, we're talking about maybe, a, a, you know, a thousand people that didn't need to have a, a major operation. So I, I don't know that it's entirely trivial, but I mean, it's obviously not a dramatic change. So I mean, I think it's uh, definitely a, a fair point. So let's so let's talk about the intervention a little bit. So basically, what they did was they had a local opinion leader within each institution give the whole sounds like labor and delivery team, the obstetricians, the family physicians, the nurses, uh, an in-service where they reviewed the latest uh, Canadian guidelines on uh, appropriate management of labor and delivery, specifically focusing on C-section use. And then they had a, a committee struck with uh, two or three or four people at each institution, again, including obstetricians, nurses, and, and GPs that uh, served as an auditing committee, and they basically reviewed uh, all the C-sections in the first month of every quarter and determined the you know, local rates of C-sections and reviewed the specific cases and provided feedback, both they describe uh, somewhat vaguely informal and uh, formal feedback to the members of the healthcare team to try and, uh, you know, I guess, provide teaching around each of the cases that were done in that, in that first month. And so in the one-year intervention period, this would have occurred uh, four times for each of the uh, quarters of the year. And then in the uh, post-intervention year, the 
Those randomized to the intervention were encouraged to maintain this practice, but they received no ongoing external support from the investigators, which they did receive uh, during the intervention period. Okay. So it seems like a pretty straightforward education-based and then some audit and feedback intervention. A couple of, I guess, initial thoughts come to my mind. First is, what are the hospitals that these people are working in? What were the sort of characteristics of these hospitals? Was most of the obstetrical medicine being provided by obstetricians or family physicians? And did this affect the outcome? So the hospitals, um, in order to meet criteria, all had a rate of 300 deliveries a year and a C-section rate of at least 17% with no specific uh, quality improvement uh, programs ongoing for C-section reduction. So those were their inclusion criteria. And they had over uh, 32 hospitals ultimately sort of deemed eligible for this. But when they attempted to randomize and they wanted to uh, stratify based on hospital size and community versus academic, they resulted in... uh, 32 total, 16 in each group. So regarding your second question, uh, in in both um, groups, the rates of deliveries performed by family physicians was about 40%. I did want to point out that uh, they did some auditing of adherence to this uh, auditing and feedback protocol. 25% or four of the, of the hospitals uh, randomized to the inter- intervention were not uh, found to be compliant with the intervention itself. So when they reanalyzed with uh, just looking at those uh, hospitals that were compliant, the effect was larger, as you might expect, increasing to 3.4% absolute risk reduction. And uh, another point that I think was interesting was that when they separated their analysis between high-risk and low-risk pregnancies, which they didn't specifically define uh, their criteria for those terms, the effect was actually not seen in, uh, in high-risk pregnancies at all which uh, I think is somewhat interesting and uh, maybe, you know, is suggesting that maybe there's more appropriate C-section use or a, a different threshold for C-section use in, in pregnancies deemed to be high risk and the area for improvement seemed to be in, in those uh, of low risk. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, the obvious, I guess, thought process is that there's inappropriate use of C-sections in low risk deliveries and, you know, that that is something that could be avoided. And perhaps in high-risk deliveries, the rate of C-section is wholly appropriate. One of the questions I was wondering is, you know, they have, you know, 30 to 40 hospitals at their baseline measurements. Do they comment on the variation between hospitals in terms of C-section rates? Because that might point to an opportunity for intervention if there was dramatic area variation in the rates of of C-sections. I couldn't really see much about that in their paper. No, neither could I. And, you know, in trying to, to piece together you know, bits of that, so their inclusion criteria were that hospital had to have at least a 17% rate of cesarean section. I'm not sure where they got that number from. And, and then, again, the baseline rates, they don't uh, break it down hospital by hospital. So I guess one of the concerns might be that if you're reducing the rate of inappropriate C-sections, are you also perhaps reducing the rate of appropriate C-sections? And so did they look at maternal outcomes and you know were they improved or harmed? And what about neonatal outcomes? So they looked at both maternal, major, and minor morbidity and similarly neonatal, uh, major, and minor morbidity. And they found no changes in maternal morbidity at all. And actually small improvements and major neonatal morbidity, but 
quite small and no change in minor neonatal morbidity. So it, it didn't seem that reducing these C-section rates, uh, you know, modestly, uh, for sure, uh, caused any changes, significant changes in, uh, in, in, in complication rates for mother or baby. Now, you know, I, a couple of things that uh, that I think we've noticed here was that in the introduction of the manuscript, they talked about the national rates of C-section increasing from 20 to 28 percent, like we mentioned. But the baseline rates here in Quebec, uh, in both groups, were around you know 22 and a half to 23 and a half percent. And I, I do think that in the United States, the baseline C-section rates are you know over 30 percent. I think due to the medical legal climate there, with an even lower threshold to proceed to a C-section. So I wonder if there may be other jurisdictions in Canada and maybe other jurisdictions in the world where the rates of inappropriate C-sections are higher and where an intervention like this may result in an even larger effect. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And there was no real uh, data about cost-effectiveness of this intervention here in this study. We can assume that reducing the rates of C-section is going to dramatically reduce costs, but you know whether the offset of those costs is enough to cover the cost of the program itself. We don't know any information about that, right? Right. Okay. So, Nathan, why don't you give us a one-line summary of the paper? So, the one-liner is that this uh, quality improvement initiative that included both uh, in-services and audit feedback uh, practices did result in a in a modest, uh, call it 2% uh, reduction in the rates of C-sections uh, in hospitals in Quebec. Okay, thank you so much. So I wanted to talk about alcoholic hepatitis, a study called the STOP-AH trial. It's either STOP-AH or STOPA. So I think I'm going to go with STOP-AH. You are the man when it comes to uh, trial acronyms as far as I'm concerned. So however you want to say it, that's how I'm going to say it. All right. Well, I appreciate that vote of confidence. So this was a double-blinded randomized control trial that studied patients with alcoholic hepatitis and found that the two recommended treatments, pentoxifylline and prednisolone, uh, didn't have particularly impressive effects. Pentoxifylline did not improve outcomes for the patients at all, and prednisolone may have improved short-term but did not improve long-term outcomes. Okay, so uh, maybe before we get into the details, you can walk me through a little bit about the, the specific patient population that this was looking at. Were these people with acute or chronic uh, alcoholic liver disease, what was the uh, outpatient, inpatient, what was the, the the kind of group of patients that we're talking about here? So this study was specifically examining patients who presented to hospital acutely and were diagnosed clinically with alcoholic hepatitis, so acute hepatitis from alcohol intoxication. As you might imagine, many of these patients, if not all of these patients, had chronic alcoholic liver disease. But this was specifically about their acute presentation for alcoholic hepatitis, which meant that the clinicians felt that the hepatitis was not from another cause. So when patients present with uh, acute hepatitis, acute alcoholic hepatitis, we evaluate or grade the severity of their hepatitis using something called the MADRI's discriminant function. It's basically just a score of liver synthetic function. And patients who have severe hepatitis or significant liver dysfunction have very high rates of mortality. And most clinicians, based on clinical practice guidelines from associations like the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases, recommend treatment with either prednisolone or pentoxifylline. The rates of mortality in these patients who have severe alcoholic hepatitis are really high. So historically, they've been reported as being between 20 and 30 percent 
within one month of their presentation, around 40% within 90 days, and up to 50 to 60% at one year. Wow. Yeah, so, so it's an important and, and morbid disease in these patients. And so the evidence, however, for the use of prednisolone or pentoxifiline is quite poor. The largest RCT to date for prednisolone was only about 90 patients, according to the authors in this trial. And it's controversial whether the benefits in terms of the anti-inflammatory effect of specifically the steroids outweighs the risks of infection and bleeding that might be elevated with it. Okay. So exactly what did they do in this study? Yeah, so this was a multi-center randomized control trial. They included 65 hospitals in the United Kingdom. Uh, it was double-blinded, and it was a two-by-two two factorial design, meaning that they were studying four groups of patients effectively. And they enrolled patients who were admitted with this clinical diagnosis of alcoholic hepatitis and a severe score on their MADRI discriminant function. And the patients were randomly assigned to one of four groups, either pentoxifiline alone, steroid alone, both pentoxifiline and steroid, or just placebo. Uh, and all of the patients were treated for 28 days. While admitted to hospital for 28 days, or this could be continued uh, as an outpatient? Yeah, that's right. So you could, could be, it could be continued as an outpatient. And can you give us a sense of... Uh... The, the biochemical abnormalities that a patient might have it to qualify them to be uh, severe on that uh, scale? Like what kind of... Sure. So I'll tell you the, the average characteristics of the patients that were admitted in this study. So their prothrombin time or their INR was more than double the upper limit of normal. Uh, and their MELD score was on average something like 21. And uh, I think... Uh, as you know, you might know better. So the MELD score for a cutoff of trans consideration for a transplant is like 15, right? Yeah, 15, 16. So, uh, yeah. And so um, this study was powered based upon that to detect a difference in mortality from 30% to 21%. So they were basing their power estimate on an est a predicted 30-day mortality of 30%. Okay, so, so let's talk about what they actually found. So uh, they found that their overall one-month mortality rate was actually 16%, so about half of what they had expected. Uh, and effectively, there was no significant tr difference in the pentoxifiline group. And in the prednisolone group, the odds ratio of death was low, like 0 0.72, so 72% uh, odds of, of dying. But it didn't quite achieve statistical significance with a p-value of 0 0.06. And then when they looked at longer-term outcomes, there was no effect on survival or transplantation at 90 days or one year. So what do you think about that, uh, that prednisolone uh, effect? I mean, um, are we splitting hairs by saying, oh, p-value 0.06 instead of 0.05? Do you think maybe the study was underpowered, or do you think this is actually a, you know, a negative result and, we, and should be considered along with the... Uh, pentoxifiline as uh, not of any therapeutic benefit. Yeah, so as all uh, the statisticians who may be listening or uh, involved in this might sort of roll over at this, uh, I think it is splitting hairs, but let's be honest, it's like the critical hair that we always uh, say needs to be split in terms of meeting your significance criteria. So <laughs> technically, we haven't split that hair. We have not met our significance criteria of 0.05, right? Uh, right. Right. Having said that, I think that 
the study was somewhat underpowered given that they were pre predicting or anticipating a 30% mortality rate and they saw roughly half of that. Um, and uh, it does seem like there's a bit of a trend towards benefit. Now, uh, the prednisolone was not a harmless uh, therapy, as you might imagine. Um, there was a higher rate of infection in the prednisolone group. 13% had infection as opposed to 7% who did not receive prednisolone, which was a statistically significant finding. Okay, so the, the drug that uh, definitely didn't help also definitely didn't cause harm, and the drug that maybe helped definitely caused some harm. Correct, which puts us at a bit of a Hippocratic dilemma, Nathan. Yes, prima, et cetera, non et cetera. Nocere, <laughs> non nocere, or something like that. Okay, Latin, we are not. So, um, you know, overall, this is a an important study because this is a, a morbid condition that we're seeing all too frequently. And, you know, the best available evidence previously suggested that we should intervene. And now, I mean, I think this study certainly tells us that we should not be using pentoxyphylline. There seems to be no benefit at all. Uh, and in terms of using the steroids, it's a bit of a toss-up. Uh, it may improve your 30-day outcomes, but it's unlikely to improve your outcomes uh, at 90 days or one year. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's it, may, it sort of calls into question whether that should continue as clinical practice. Yeah, so, I mean, what do you think? I mean, my, my kind of bias with uh, the caveat that everything I know about this uh, really is coming from what you're telling me. <laughs> but uh, my bias would probably be to not... You have an excellent source. To not, <laughs> to not use it. I mean, uh, it doesn't affect the long-term uh, trajectory of the illness. So it's not really a disease modifying per se. There's short-term harm and morbidity, it sounds like, with uh, increased inf infections. What, uh, what do you think you'll do the next time you see a patient like this? I'm going to do what the American... Association for the Study of Liver Disease tells me to do. No, um... So status quo until they revise their guidelines based on this trial. No, I think that I will never... I, I will not use pentoxyphylline, for sure. Uh -huh. And I'd have to think about the prednisolone. No, I, I do cop, believe cop, that there's... So no, no, no. Copping, I'm, copping out. <laughs> no, I do believe that there's a trend to benefit. I have to say, I, I in do the, believe that But only in 30 days. Only within sure. 30 days. But sometimes that 30-day mat... I mean, you know, that, that might matter and... The argument is probably in the longer term, you know, the ongoing use of alcohol is what removes any benefit, right? right. And so, you know, I'm an optimist. I think people can change. Uh, and we can do our best to help help them, uh, you know, live <laughs> help healthier them, lives. Help them help themselves. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just one, I'll make one quick point, which is that uh, the thing that stuck out for me in this study, and I spent a lot of time trying to understand more about this, was the fact that the average time from admission to initiation of treatment was like six or seven days. Um, and I would argue that for an acute condition like this, you know, that might be a significant time difference that might be mitigating some of the potential benefits you might have seen uh, from earlier initiation of therapy. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out uh, exactly why that was the case and, uh, uh, you know, w how that might have had an effect on, on the patient's outcomes. I mean, seems seems like uh, seems like an important point that might need to be clarified before really getting too gung ho about uh, the findings. I agree with you. Okay, so let me summarize by saying that uh, this large randomized control trial basically demonstrated that pentoxyphylline does not improve outcomes in patients with alcoholic hepatitis, and prednisolone may have a beneficial effect on short-term outcomes but did not improve 90-day or one-year outcomes for patients with acute alcoholic hepatitis. 
Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, so Nathan, time for the best part of our show. Tell me what caught your attention from the world of medicine. So, uh, do you know how many countries a mole in the world have uh, universal Medicare but no universal Pharmacare? Phenomenal question, and I'm going to say one. You're so wise. Is that care right? To, care, to, care to shout it out? I'm going to guess it's our very own uh, home and native land. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, that's absolutely right. So in uh, a recent issue of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, there was a, a study trying to uh, explore the economic uh, impact of a, a national pharmacare system in Canada, given that uh, we do sit in this uh, unique spot of uh, having a, such a the pride and joy of our healthcare system, being that it's publicly funded, with the you know big asterisk caveat of not not for medication. So they uh, did some sophisticated uh, analyses looking at how this would affect um, overall uh, government, provincial, and federal government spending, and. There were a lot of different assumptions that were built into this that could be adjusted, but basically incremental costs to the government would be either modest or potentially result in savings, which is interesting. Uh, how could they save money by implementing such a, a system? So the, the main, uh, the main ways that the government would save money with the national farm care system would be, uh, the economies of scale from increased purchasing power and also not having to pay for private insurance for all uh, the civil servants. And uh, this was accompanied by uh, an editorial basically kind of saying, you know, enough is enough. It's an interesting editorial because the author quoted like two or three of his own previous editorials <laughs> from the past, you know, five or ten years, uh, you know, continuing to beat this drum. But, uh, you know, the ethical and moral and social benefits of such a policy, uh, I think, kind of go without saying. And now they have some compelling uh, economic analysis uh, to go behind it, too. So it was... Uh, a good couple of papers in, in this week's uh, National Journal. Uh, thank you. Good recommendation. So uh, from my side, Nathan, how many specialties exist for which you have no idea what the title of that specialty uh, entails in terms of job description for medical specialties? Me, be, me as a doctor or me as a, a random uh, citizen? You as a random citizen. Oh, I don't know, 20? I have to say, as an internist, and soon to hopefully be general internist, nothing is more uh, difficult than explaining what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And so... Try general surgery. <laughs> at least you can say you take out gallbladders and, you know, it may not capture the scope of your practice, but if you say surgeon, people know what you do. When I say internist, half of the people think I do surgery. So... Uh, fortunately, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons have responded to this need, as well as the Canadian Society of Internal Medicine, and there's a beautiful four-minute little video about what is an internist, um, and I would highly recommend you all check it out, share it with your friends and family. Are you going to stream it? Stream it on the, like, the lounges of the uh, medicine wards here <laughs> in Toronto? And, you like, just tell everyone. Yeah. Get the word out there. The uh, emergency emergency department. <laughs> Yeah, it's, we're not just house. Uh, so anyway, uh, that's that's my recommendation. It was it was nice to see. I can't wait to watch it. Okay, uh, thanks, Nathan. Pleasure to chat with you as always. Let's do it again soon. Can't wait. <laughs>